Um, well, again, welcome to Praxis. It's good to be with all of you, uh, whether you're joining us online or here in person in the nice chilly weather. Hope you uh, enjoyed the time off last week or if you were able to participate and uh, play Minute to Win It games, um, hopefully that uh, just fostered fellowship amongst uh, the community here. Uh, my name is Pastor Alan. Well, my name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at this church. And um, I oversee the Young Adult Ministry, which is right here, Praxis. Uh, for those who I haven't had the blessing of meeting, I look forward to getting to know you and to know the rest of you better. Uh, as a fellowship group, we've been studying the book of Romans. And uh, we've been at it for a couple of months now. We're in chapter 2. And for tonight, we're going to finish out chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them. So Romans chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 25 to 29. I'll go ahead and read our passage, and then we will pray for the Lord's help upon our time. Romans chapter 2, beginning verse 25. This is the word of God. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's pray. God, we are in dire need of your help. Lord, not only when we tackle difficult passages like these, uh, but Lord, just even in terms of growing in godliness, Lord, we know that this is not something that is produced by our own efforts, by our own education and talents, but something that you are so kind to give to us, a fruit and Christ-likeness. And so we ask that you would use your instrument, that your word would be like a sword to cut us down and fashion us to make us more like your son, that it would be our joy to follow after him. And so give us insight now. Lord, at first glance, even as we read our passage, we're a bit befuddled, maybe confused by how this can speak into our hearts and change our lives. And so we ask that uh, by the same Spirit that quickens uh, our hearts to acknowledge Christ as Lord and Savior, by His ministry to us, that we would mature uh, in godliness, in understanding, in appreciation of the gospel. So be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, like I mentioned, tonight we finish off chapter 2 of Romans. And if you've been with us in the weeks and months prior, you know that these opening chapters, these beginning passages, haven't been the most uplifting verses. Yet they've been so necessary for us. Paul is setting the table presenting the problem, our sin and unrighteousness, all the ugliness of it, so that we see our desperate need of Jesus Christ. 
so that the loveliness and grace of Jesus is all the more attractive and compelling to us. And so in these early chapters, it's kind of been like eating the slices of humble pie one after another. That the apostle has been setting the case to rob us of any excuse, of any escape from our guilt. Now, by way of review, in the first chapter, Paul throws down the gauntlet. He argues how mankind, all of humanity, is culpable before God. That though people may try to squirm their way out of it and justify their disobedience by claiming ignorance, by saying, well, I never knew God. No one told me about God. You know what the apostle does? Paul just points to the skies, to the mountains, to the animals surrounding us and all of creation. Creation tests to the existence of God. And so people do know better, but we choose to rebel, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for false idols. We live and serve self when we innately recognize that as created beings, we are accountable to our divine creator, and yet we spurn him. Now there is a group in Paul's audience that follows all of this and then shrugs their shoulders. They snicker at this because they believe they are exempt. They think themselves free from such condemnation. Oh sure, the Gentiles and all others, well, those people are uneducated, unenlightened. But we, the Jews, the Israelites, the people of God, well, we're special. I mean, just read the Old Testament. The Israelites would have grinned because they assumed they are the exception. They had the law of God. They had religious customs they followed. They were established as a nation, as the very people of God. But you see, this is the very sword that they also fall on because Paul exposes how they're just as guilty as their Gentile counterparts. Though they had a leg up on others, they had squandered their privileged position, this grace. Instead of seeing and responding to the law and their religious traditions as God's gracious provision for a relationship with him, the Jews used it to stroke their own egos. They turned it into a contest. Instead of drawing closer, near to God, their rituals and rites became a way to display, well, who is more pious and holy amongst their peers. And they had effectively gutted God out from their religion and fallen for the same trap as the Gentiles, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for the image of self. And to convince the Jews of their folly, in chapter 2, the apostle has been presenting us with how warped their understanding of the law was. And tonight, of how warped their understanding of circumcision was. How they had missed the whole point and purpose of this ceremony. So there you have it. We are going to talk about circumcision. So I am on a roll in the book of Romans because last time I preached... I preached on God giving us up to our dishonorable passions and homosexuality, and the topic for tonight is circumcision. But since Praxis is a young adult ministry, let us be, as a charge to all of us, let us be mature young adults. And I stress mature and adults. Because this issue, 
you laugh because you know you need that encouragement. But this issue is actually important, and it has relevance more than we might initially think. Because as strange as it sounds, circumcision actually helps us appreciate the gospel and understand the essence of Christianity. Now, maybe you're not connecting the dots, so we've got a lot of work in order to get there. So let's press on. Our first point for our passage is the sign of circumcision. The sign of circumcision. Now, to aid our time together, we need a working definition. Circumcision, if you don't know, is the removal of the foreskin from the male genital. That's all I'm going to say about that. While circumcision is still a medical procedure that's performed today, it has ancient origins. This practice is tied all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. Remember that? If you've read your Bibles, it starts all the way in Genesis, Genesis 12, and it's a huge turning point up to then in redemptive history. Because preceding that is what incident? The Tower of Babel. And all of mankind is judged and then scattered because in their hubris, they only congregate, they gather to fight God, to rival God. And so after he disperses the people for their audacious arrogance, God then decides to remedy the situation. That he will create a people for himself, a nation not marked by pride, but joyful submission and obedience. And what does God do? God calls Abraham, or Abram, out of Ur of Chaldea. And he promises this man to turn him and his seed, his generation, into a great nation. As the story continues, God seals this promise with a sign, circumcision. You don't have to turn there, but Genesis 17 records this in verses 10 and 11. God speaking, he says, This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Here it is. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, I don't know about you, but I would pay millions to see Abraham's face, right? He's probably thinking, circumcision as a sign of your covenant, God? That's not the sign you just gave to Noah. You know, can we do something like rainbows again? Something happier and less painful? And my guess is the first time you ever read these verses, your reaction was also a bit of a, a puzzled look, right? You, you also wondered why. Why circumcision as a sign of God's covenant? Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. One, for identity. Identity. We've established circumcision is an unusual sign, right? It's not something you suggest as a way to delineate you and your crew from the rest of the crowd around you. If you needed a, a quote-unquote team jersey, you'd probably settle for something less bizarre or drastic, maybe like wearing the same color, right? It seems more feasible, more reasonable. Or if you're really extreme, you might get matching tattoos with someone. And even then, it's only with the closest of friends and family members to get inked up with the same design as a sign of intimacy, belonging, closeness. Circumcision is not the kind of pact we naturally make with one another. But I think that's why God chose it as a sign for his covenant. It is 
unique. In fact, not to be crass, but if a foreign woman back then were to have sexual relations with an Israelite, she would immediately know where this man had come from, what nation and what God he belonged to. Because there was only one people who did this. And this leads to our second explanation for the sign of circumcision. Really the consequence or the aftermath of this identity idea. Because identity by nature sets you apart. It distinguishes you. And so here you have the cutting off of the foreskin being symbolic for how this nation was cut off from the world, dedicated to God. That they were supposed to be Yahweh's people. That the divine mandate we read about in Genesis to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, the seed of the woman, the promise of a serpent crusher, and the plan of redemption would be carried out not through any people, but through this nation. That Israel was the vehicle of salvation. That as they gave birth to sons and daughters, as they raised their children to fear and obey the Lord, as they grew, populated to become a great nation, circumcision reminded them of their mission that they were to model to their neighbors, to the world, what it looked like to know, love, and live for the God of the Bible. That they were separated from pagan practices and false idols. That their circumcision was a sign, a physical reminder of their spiritual devotion. The Israelites were set apart for the Lord. We can now see why Paul remarks that circumcision is of value in our passage in verse 25. He says, for circumcision indeed is of value, but there's a condition. The apostle qualifies it in the rest of the verse. If, it's of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. What's going on here? Paul's not speaking out of both sides of his mouth. It's actually pretty straightforward. Circumcision is prescribed as an opportunity, as an outlet for obedience, just like the commands in the law. And so you keep both and everything else God instructs because it is an avenue in which you demonstrate that you worship him. So Paul here is referring to consistency that all facets of your life line up. It'd be like if you won the award at work, employee of the month, but everyone around you knew that you fudged the numbers, that you lied to your managers, that you cheated your way to the top. Well, then this plaque with your name embossed is, yes, it's a sign of recognition, but not the one you'd really want. Everyone would recognize it differently. It's no longer a display of your excellence. No, it's stolen valor. It doesn't represent integrity and diligence, but your infidelity, your duplicity. And you cheated. You broke the rules. You missed the purpose. The whole goal was not just to get your name on some wall. The aim was to be an employee that merits imitation and praise of others, especially your boss. Was there value in circumcision? Of course. 
but only if viewed properly, if received as God intended, not as a stool to stand upon for bragging rights, but as a means of grace to promote greater obedience and worship of God. And you think about how twisted the Jews have become. Isn't it crazy? That these Jews trusted more in their circumcision than their God. But listen, the same insanity can happen in the Christian life today. I mean, just pick your poison and substitute it into this verse. Is there value in baptism, church membership, Bible reading plans, and accountability groups? Of course, of course. But if, if only viewed properly, if received and used as God intended, not as a prop to push yourself up over others and gloat or grounds for earning your salvation, but they are of value as a means of grace. That these blessings and customs are provided by God to get us to God, to encourage obedience and the enjoyment of Him. I think the application is obvious. Practice. What signs and symbols have you put too much value into? You know, is your reputation built on how many ministries you serve in? The number of Bible verses you've memorized? Is it in theological acumen, frequency of prayer, and evangelism? Or being well regarded by your peers, by the church community? If I ask you, point blank about your faith, do you merely describe what surrounds Christianity or what is central to Christianity? But we ought to be wary if our answers deal primarily with the date we signed a card, where we've gone for mission trip, or how we've grown up in a godly household. You ought to be concerned if you gravitate more to the things of Christianity instead of Jesus Christ himself. Beloved, don't mix traditions for true transformation. To do so is to blur the line between what's a sign of faith and what's really significant in faith. This was the Israelites' crucial error. The Jews had made circumcision more about their religious performance than worshiping God. And listen, when we make that subtle shift, we miss out on the significance of the sign, which brings us to our second point tonight, the significance of circumcision. The significance of circumcision. Again, to be crystal clear and to hammer it home for us, circumcision was a sign. Its significance lies, therefore, in what it symbolizes. I think we all get this. There's a major difference between a sign for Disneyland and actually being there. One is the pointer for the other. Or just consider the significance of a wedding band. The wedding band, right? One ring to rule them all. Right? Just kidding. That's a different ring. But the rings exchanged on the wedding date is not all there is to marriage, right? It's not like this piece of jewelry endows you with a blessed union and powers to be the best husband or supportive wife. No, the significance is in what that ring represents. 
It is a perpetual symbol, a reminder of your covenant, of your commitment to love your spouse in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse, till death do us part. But listen, you betray the significance of the wedding band if you put down your spouse, if you commit adultery, no matter how long that piece of jewelry stays on your finger. On the flip side, if you had a husband who didn't wear his wedding ring, it doesn't automatically mean he's a terrible husband. It could, but it'd be a bit premature to just jump to that conclusion. Maybe his fingers were just getting a little chubby over the years, right? This is hypothetical, not personal confession time. I have my ring on, okay? <laughs> but the absence of the ring doesn't necessarily indicate that he's a poor partner. It doesn't define and dictate who he is or the state of the marriage. He could still be the greatest husband, you know, pampering his wife with chocolates and flowers on the regular. He could still embody what a ring-wearing husband should be. And this is the alternative scenario Paul raises to rebuke the Jews for missing the significance of circumcision. The apostle kind of plays devil advocate here in verses 26 and 27. Look again in your Bibles. He says, So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precept of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Now, we need to feel the gravity of this because it would have rubbed the Israelites the wrong way. These are fighting words. To a proud Jew, there was nothing worse than being put on the same plane as the uncircumcised or being mentioned in the same sentence. Uncircumcised, that's a derogatory word, like the racist slurs today that are big no-nos. And here, Paul offends the Jews to bruise their ego and bring them to realization, to repentance, that if uncircumcised people, if these people outside of the covenant, if Gentiles without privileged, historied heritage, without the signs and promises, prove themselves to be faithful in obedience, will God not look on them favorably? Of course, and here's why. Because circumcision was a special sign, but it was to be overshadowed by what's more significant, devotion, worship, obedience to God. I'm sure you've heard a version of a popular parenting parable where one child hears his mother's instruction, you know, clean your room. And this kid acknowledges, yes, mom, I will clean my room. But then what happens? Well, for whatever reason, maybe he's distracted, he's watching TV or he's eating a snack. He never gets around to it. But his sibling, on the other hand, who's never told explicitly by his mom to clean his room, well, he does it on his own volition. Now, who really honors and obeys his mom? Who is mom pleased with? You see, lip service is cheap. And so is circumcision without what truly matters. But I do want to pump the brakes and caution us. We need to be careful of swinging the pendulum too far the other way. 
We assume since signs and rituals are superficial to an extent, the temptation then is to be reckless and do away with everything, right? To be extreme and just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Well, if salvation is by faith, then what's the point? Forget circumcision. Who cares about communion, prayer meetings, and tithing? I don't need all this extra baggage. My justification is by faith alone. Feels super spiritual, super reformed. To which I would reply and return back to verse 25. Look, Paul didn't say circumcision is of no value. There is value as long as you have the right engine under the hood. There is significance if everything matches up, if there is integrity, if there is consistency. Paul is not advocating us to abandon all religious activity and remain in some trance-like meditation with God. You have to live, but make sure you live for God. You see, the apostle is nuanced here. Religious action must flow out of religious affections. Yes, God's main concern is over your heart because he understands once he has your heart, he has you. But listen, he also cares about what you do with your hands and feet, about the action that follows the heart. This is the illustration Jesus uses so many times. That you will know them by what? By their fruit. Matthew 7, 17, 18. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So practice, examine your life, how a farmer would his harvest. First off, no farmer is content with a barren tree. The whole impetus for planting a fruit tree is for it to bear fruit. But even when it begins to yield apples and oranges, if he's a good farmer, he's still not completely satisfied. He needs to evaluate the quality of the produce. And I think this provides a helpful parallel for how we should inspect our lives. Is there lack of fruit? Or is there bad fruit in your life? Or how about this, which is even trickier? Is there an appearance of good fruit? But take a bite and it's rotten. It is filled to the core with selfishness. We need to trace all these fruits back to the source and investigate why. And you go to the root, to what's truly significant, which leads us to our final point. The spirit of circumcision. The spirit of circumcision. Verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor circumcision outward and physical. So here we've already discussed so far in chapter 2, the law and now circumcision. These were the hallmarks of Jewish culture. It's how they showcased their religiosity, how they demonstrated their privileged position. And that's why they would have been perplexed at this verse. What is circumcision if it's not outward, if it's not physical? But there's one word here that clarifies the confusion. Do you see it in this verse? Merely. Merely. It is not sufficient to be a Jew merely, only, solely by outward and physical appearance. 
It is not adequate to simply adhere to ancient rituals and rites. Sure, compliance is better than nothing, but by itself, it is never enough. And so the same with us. Right conformity without right conviction can be wrong. Paul is pressing all of us deeper. Thus far in the book of Romans, this is the strongest allusion to how Paul would describe a genuine Christian, a true Jew, if you will. The apostle is redefining the terms as to what it means to really belong to God. That it doesn't boil down just to external piety. What is of utmost importance is what takes place inside. And Paul now makes it crystal clear in verse 29. He says, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And we need to understand how radical and outlandish this would have sounded to Paul's audience, to those that were Jew in the, Jews in the congregation. It'd be tantamount to if I told you today that the gospel and Christianity is no longer about faith in Christ, but all about your righteous deeds, about your works. That's the kind of reversal, the level of shock and revolution the Jews would have experienced. The only difference here is that Paul is moving in the opposite direction, from works to faith, from the outside in. And yet, such a teaching was always right under their nose. They were just too dense to get it, too infatuated with themselves. We read of verses like Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, where it says this, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. So they, they had it in the law staring them in the face. That circumcision was always more than a painful physical procedure. It was a teaching instrument that unveiled to them a greater spiritual truth. But the Jews were too busy with the external, too preoccupied with the outside. Why? Because that's always easier to manage, quantify, observe, and do. And aren't we just as susceptible? It is much easier for us to gauge and measure our religiosity by the length of our prayers, by our Bible reading streak, or the dollar amount we contribute to missions or to the church. It gives us a tangible metric, something by which we can pat ourselves on the back. I mean, this is the mentality and culture we were raised in, right? And we've been fed a steady diet of workspace performance. You look at school. How do you succeed? Well, you turn in your homework. You study for the test. You look at sports. How do you excel? You keep practicing. You train harder. Look at your jobs. How do you get the bonus? Well, you stay late at the office. You go above and beyond. Then you'll be rewarded. Then you'll see the results. And this approach to life has been so ingrained and adopted by us, we assume the same system can be applied 
to God. No, we'll just import our work ethic. But we can't simply manufacture a relationship with the living God. You see, the issue is not whether circumcision is good or bad, whether the law is good or bad. Here's the crux of the matter. Is the law inside or outside my heart? Is physical circumcision a reflection of a spiritual reality, or is it only skin deep? And if you're frustrated by this, then good. It ought to bring you to your knees. It ought to leave you despairing because you realize this is not something you can do. This is something that God must do. It is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Does this render us helpless, powerless, ineffective? In some ways, we should be comfortable saying yes, that we are at the mercy of another. But that's the best place to be. Because you know what beggars do? They beg. They beg that our hearts cannot be changed by straining or trying harder, by surely keeping the letter of the law. This is an inside job, a divine operation that requires God to intervene, to work on our hearts by the Spirit. And so we plead for grace. We cry for mercy because that is what we are commanded to do, to need Him. Praxis, this should infiltrate every area in your life. Is this attitude laced into everything you do? Is there a needy dependence upon God that is exhibited in your Bible reading that you can't truly make sense of the Scriptures unless God illumines your mind, that you are unable to earnestly apply it into your life unless God melts your stubborn will? Is there a desperate disposition in your prayers that as the apostle will unfold in Romans 8, you and I can't even pray properly. You need the Spirit's power to intercede. Praxis, is there a humble aroma to your service, to your life, because you feel the predilection to boast in yourself, to trust in yourself, if God does not constantly remind you that He is the source, that He is sufficient, that He is the one who wields true strength. He supplies the resources in our lives, in our hearts, that we can, therefore, sacrifice and love others. He is sovereign and in control. Have you forgotten that salvation is a divine miracle, that the Spirit works in our hearts? And if we acknowledge that, when we profess faith in Christ, then let that be the heartbeat. Let that be the motto of our days as we follow after Christ. And that's when this verse ends rightly. When we clothe ourselves in meekness, a clinging to God because we understand apart from Him, we can do nothing, that there is no good apart from Him. That we're no longer interested then in garnering the respect and admiration of our peers, but instead we live for the audience of one, the applause of God. One pastor said, you can be impressive or you can be known.
but you can't be both. And that really makes sense, right? Just think about that. Man can only look at the outside, but his, their, our eyes do not pierce to each other's hearts. But when we're not obsessed about our performance, our name, we're no longer enslaved to external conformity and the approval of others. Our sights then are turned and fixed upon God who is looking back at us. And God's eyes penetrate. He sees us for who we truly are. Not the facade that we project, not conformity to what we assume should be done here at church, but he sees us. And here's the plot twist. Such a person can be praised by God. And I know that sounds off, maybe a little blasphemous to say. In our Christian circles, we've been trained to ascribe all honor and glory to God. And rightly so. We show up on a Thursday or Sunday to worship Him, to lift our voice in song, to study His Word, not ours, to fellowship together for the praise of His name. But as appropriate as that all is, the apostle tells us there's more to the story. God sings over his children, that he rejoices when his people walk in obedience, that he actually praises us when we respond and do well. Does that shock you? We need room for this in our theology. A Christian, you can please God. You can make him proud. And that is not sacrilegious to say. That is biblical. What a grace, right? And we're not only commanded to do what is right, good, and holy, but the added incentive is to put a smile on God's face. That we pursue these things because we love him and yearn to hear him say, well done. This is the heart. Not some rote system of religiosity but a living and loving relationship with God. That we aren't in it for this robotic routine of doing what's moral and pious. No, we commune with our Heavenly Father until we become like Him. That we fellowship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our advocate and helper, the Holy Spirit, who has replaced our dead and stony hearts with one that beats for Him. And when the internal is alive and well, then all the externals will eventually fall into place. You know, maybe not always perfectly and quickly, but gradually, surely, then what's inside comes to be manifested on the outside. When the transformation of the heart is evident in transformed lives. You know, there are certain things in life that serve their function only when properly used. You take a telescope, right? If you shelled out big bucks to purchase a professional grade telescope, it'd be a waste to set it up and just admire how it looks in the corner of your room. No, the whole point of the telescope is not some decor, but to allow you to see something better. Now, the telescope serves its purpose when you marvel at the beauty and magnitude of the galaxy of the Milky Way. Well, Christian traditions, rituals, they serve their purpose when you marvel at the beauty and magnitude of Jesus Christ, 
when they are an aid, not a hindrance, but an aid to savoring and cherishing Him. That the means of grace are exactly that. A means to a greater grace, to a greater end. And the tragedy in the Christian life is to pull up too short. And let me close by exhorting us, by speaking specifically to this demographic, to young adults, to practice fellowship group. You know, much of youth and the college years are concerned with sowing seeds or biking with training wheels. But praxis is the time when you begin to really pedal on your own. So many of you are discovering who you are and all that you have at your disposal. You're figuring out what to do with all this newfound freedom, how to use your time, your resources, your relationships, your talents. And the tragedy would be to pull up too short. The tragedy would be to mismanage all these blessings and skills that God has entrusted to you. It would be, in effect, to use your telescope to navel gaze. You'd be missing front row seats to beholding the wonder and glory of God. So my exhortation to you is simple. Steward the season of life well. Don't fixate so much on the future that you forsake the present. It may sound cliche, but you'll never get your 20s back. And in reality, God has designed these years to be formative, foundational for who you are in your 30s, 40s, 50s. So in whatever God brings and wherever you are, be all there. Pour yourself out now for the gospel. Study the scriptures. Drink deeply from his word until it draws you to God and others. Serve the church. If you need opportunities, just create them or ask around. And there are plenty of needs even here at Praxis. And why, why all this? Not just to preoccupy yourself and fill your schedule because you're single and you have more time. Not to win the applause of others or for a stellar Christian reputation. No, but to see God and to make Him known. Because God has changed your heart and thus your lives are changed. God, your word is always profitable, that it can expose to us ways in which we are inconsistent. Uh, it surfaces hidden sins, a pride that is really at the root of our heart that needs to be dug up, uh, that you might reign supreme in our lives, that we might honor Christ not only in speech or superficial compliance, but from within. Lord, that we would gaze upon him so fully that we would desire to become more and more like him. And so as we behold his glory, may we be transformed, transfixed by Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we pray that you would use uh, your word, that you would use all that you have blessed us with. Lord, good things that we might attain a greater faith in you, that we might grow in love of Christ and love for each other. And so continue to be at work in our hearts, 
We are desperate. We plead for you to do the work only you can do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.